Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. So last time we had Andy McCulloch with us and he was taking us in the story of Joshua, Judges and Ruth. And by the end of it, we had a, a situation where the people of Israel had now entered the promised land. They'd um, pushed out the people who were living there before. They'd settled in the different parts of the land. The different tribes had got their inheritance. And then things got a bit messy in Judges and you got all these different characters come who would save the people from different crises and then back in the cycle the people would forget God, they'd turn away from him uh, and then they'd get another crisis and cry out and God would raise up another hero and another leader uh, and it's spiralling out of control. We saw particularly towards the end with characters like Samson everything was just morally a bit of a mess and you got this verse come up at the end of Judges a few different times that says at that time there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that was a bit of an indictment on a situation that they had then that needed resolving. And so today we're going to pick up the next books of the Bible that come into that context. A people with no king, a people that are forgetting God over and over again. What's God going to do? Is he going to give them a king and will things get better when he does. So we're in Samuel, we're in Kings, and we are in Chronicles. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read any of them. Maybe uh, certain stories from those books are familiar. Uh, some of them, I think, are very famous stories. Some bits are a lot less well-known as well. Um, but the types of book that they are are historical narrative. So probably more than any other books in the Bible, this chunk that we're in tells its story by telling a story. It's not giving commandments, it's not giving a letter, it's not um, proverbial sayings, it's nothing like that. It's bashing through a story. This thing happened, and then this thing happened, and then this thing happened, and it's taking us through centuries of history. The same as if you picked up a history book at uh, Waterstones or whatever, you're reading about the events that happened. So what I want to do is get you thinking right at the start with, uh, with the people around you on your table. My question for you is, is just this. When we come to books of the Bible that are historical narrative, what would you say are some of the things that it's important to bear in mind? So how, how do we approach books of the Bible like that? Any good tips that you've discovered? Any traps or th things that you say, be wary of doing X? or definitely do why when you're reading historical narrative books. This is just a little intro question, so take three minutes with someone near you and discuss. All right, let's hear what ideas people had on that. Anyone got anything that they'd say when you come across historical narrative in the Bible, you would definitely do this or think about it this way, or bear such and such in mind? What, what, what do people say? 
Right, exactly that, because what was going on then is very different to what's going on now. Also very different to what was going on if you're reading New Testament narrative, because we're the other side of Jesus. So do some work around it, try and figure out why are they doing the things they're doing, what was the situation. Absolutely right, yeah. Yeah, any others? So we were saying reading in sort of, you know, either almost a book at a time, sort of mm. just reading a few verses, but yeah. to read a chunk of... Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, like, if you were watching a film, you wouldn't watch the film by saying, right, I'm gonna, today I'm going to watch from 57 minutes to 59 minutes of the film and see what meaning I'm going to get out of it. That's just not how, how you deal with big epic stories, is it? You want to get immersed into the big sweeps of what's going on and then the little details make sense because you, you've got the big thing, you, you're immersed in it. I, I agree, yeah. Any others? The story is often focused on a person, mm. group of people, rather than the nation as a whole. Yeah. And so the, what happens to the nation as a whole is reflected in what happens to the, yes. to the people. So um, in, in, in terms of history, it's a, it's a very coned down view. Yeah, so we're not being given, usually anyway, a snapshot of what life is like for ordinary people or for lots of different types of people. It is focusing on a few characters in particular, but as you say, it's reflective then of the bigger thing. Yeah, good. Any others? Who's doing the writing? Who's doing the writing? Yeah, that's worth knowing, isn't it? Who's writing it and why? What are their purposes? Anyone who tells a historical story they've got a lot of information they could choose to either include or not include. So they've selected certain stories. Why have they chosen what they've chosen? What are they trying to do? What, what are their theological concerns? That's, that's important, yeah. Yeah, any others? I think it's good to spot the bits that don't speak forward to Jesus. Hmm, yeah. Yeah, so th this isn't just a history. I, I said it's like a history that you'd get from Waterstones. It is different because it's theological, isn't it? It's God's word that's pointing to Jesus. So um, Jesus says the whole of the Bible testifies to him. So it's important to think, well, how does this testify to him? It does so in the big sweep, for sure, because it it's a story that finds its culmination in Jesus, but also a lot of the stories within the story then have echoes that point to Jesus. There are characters that are kind of like Jesus, but fall short in the end. So David would be a great example of this. He, he's a picture of Jesus, but we, we need a better version of David is where we get to by the end of the story. And that's what we're left longing for. So definitely look for how it points to Jesus. Yeah. Any others? Yeah. Yeah, so so look at the genre, look at what, what's going on there. That's definitely uh, another one. Uh, I'm just gonna throw one more that no one's picked up on. Remember that it's narrative, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. I think this is one of the really important things to remember when you're reading a story in the Bible. Not everyone did the right thing all the time. You don't just read a story and think, well, David did this thing, and because David did it in the Bible, it must be a really good example for me to follow, because there are lots of examples where David did shady stuff, and we'll come on to some of that 
as the morning goes. Even when characters are doing good stuff. So think about the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And he's like, hey, I, I know what we'll do. You guys are worshipping a false god. I worship the real god. Let's both set up a bonfire and let's um, put a sacrifice on it and see which god responds with fire. Now we read it and I think it would be an interpretive mistake if we thought, well, the application of this is I'm going to call all my mates who are uh, from different religions and, and we make bonfires and see what happens. Now, maybe God would bless that and maybe God would work in that way, but I don't think that's where the story's meant to take us. We're meant to be reading, we're meant to be learning what God's like from what happened and from what we see revealed. But it's not a a moral guidebook or a, a lifestyle book to just repeat what we see in these books. And so we need to think from other parts of the Bible, particularly uh, the law in the Old Testament, particularly some of the New Testament teaching, as we look at what was going on, we, we need to think, okay, if I'm going to uh, assess what was going on here, often it's not from within the story itself. Often I'm having to draw in stuff from elsewhere to learn, was this good, was this bad, how did the characters act? Maybe it was neither good nor bad, maybe it was just kind of the obvious natural response to their circumstances and we can see why they do the things that they do. There are a few though where you do get a little verdict at the end of the chapter, and like one in particular that we'll come on to where it, it says at the end of the chapter, the Lord was displeased with this. And, and when you get that, that's a little clue as to, as to what you meant to make of it. Um, but what I want to do is, I, I want to immerse us in the story, because it's written in a story form for a reason. Uh, and I think sometimes, particularly um, kind of in a British or Western context, what we love to do is reduce everything to, to principles. Here's the lists of stuff that you should learn from this. I think God has chosen to communicate using a story for a reason. So what we're going to do with most of the, the time in this session is we're just going to go into the details of the story. We're going to, we're going to tell the story all the way through uh, and we're going to see what we learn and what, what happens as we go. Um, but just to set up what it is, um, you should have this in your notes, a quote from the Gospel Coalition about 1 and 2 Samuel, about the genre. It says, the primary genre of 1 Samuel is hero story. The author did not choose the common method of Old Testament historians in giving coverage to a broad span of people and events, but instead focused primarily on three heroic leaders whose stories are elaborated at length, and they are Samuel, Saul, and David. First Samuel's uh, book of personalities, so paying close attention to characterization is important. Similarly, the book is rich and universal, recognisable human experience, with the result that building bridges between the world of the text and one's own experiences is an inviting approach to the book. Second Samuel is the prose epic of David, telling the story of a nation led by a heroic leader. The literary technique of realism permeates the book as the storyteller refuses to ignore either the good or the bad aspects of the characters. As with 1 Samuel, the story rings true to human experience. The dramatic impulse to present the actual words and dialogues of characters is continuous. So that's what we're dealing with. And we're particularly focusing on Samuel, who was the last of the judges, and then Saul and David, who were the first two kings of Israel. And the transition from Israel being led by judges to Israel being led 
by kings. So we, we pick up the story at the beginning of 1 Samuel with the character of Samuel himself, or more specifically with his parents, who are Elkanah and Hannah. Now Elkanah was a man uh, who had two wives. One of them was Hannah, and the other was Penina. Uh, and Penina had kids, but Hannah was unable to have children. Uh, she was barren. And the, that detail, as it's given in the story, is both a painful, personal situation for Hannah, but also it's something, theologically, it brings to mind some other characters in the Bible, doesn't it? We, we've, it's not a new theme to be introduced. Uh, who comes to mind when we think about uh, someone in the Bible who's unable to have children? Sarah? Sarah? Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, John the Baptist's mum, Elizabeth, yeah, in the New Testament, yeah. Sorry? One of the prophets was in Azariah, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, so um, Samson's mum, yeah, Manoah, um, so the same's true for her. You could think, um, in Genesis, you could think about Rachel, uh, was in that situation as well, wasn't she? Uh, also, uh, we saw in last week's text, uh, Ruth uh, was in that situation and able to give birth, and then the Lord opened her womb. Uh, and so we see when these stories come up, God working in these very personal situations to, to give a, a baby to someone who can't have a baby, is showing also that God's bringing a new chapter into his history of the world. That's what happened through Sarah, that's what happened through Rachel, that's what happened through Manoah, what happened through Ruth, and what's happening here through Hannah. God's doing something in the world, and it's often starting with someone who cannot have kids. And as you say in the New Testament then, with Elizabeth, and then different circumstances why naturally she wouldn't have a, a child of her own, but the same with Mary, isn't it, as well. And so Hannah's got this pain, so she goes to, to the temple to pray. Now the temple that she went to wasn't the temple that will eventually be built, it was like a localised place of worship that was referred to in that way. And uh, she goes there, she's, she's there, she's crying her eyes out on the steps. And you've got the priest there, who's a guy called Eli, and he looks at her and he thinks, yeah, she's probably drunk, I, I need to go and have a word and move her on. Which, you know, as uh, someone who leads in a church, I just think that's not very pastoral, is it? <laughs> You're there, you've got someone crying. Is your first instinct that they must be drunk? But that was his first instinct. Um, but they end up having a conversation, and Hannah's praying. Uh, she wants a child. She's praying for a child, and uh, God answers the prayer. But Hannah's made this promise that if she has a child, she will dedicate him to the Lord. Um, and that doesn't mean what we instinctively think a baby dedication is all about. I don't know if you've um, seen baby dedications at church. Um, it's a great moment, isn't it, where we, we gather, where we give thanks to God for this child that's been born. But in the Bible, a baby dedication meant he, ha he had to go and live at the temple with Eli and his sons. And I think next time we do a baby dedication, we need to um, set the upstairs room here at Kingsburn Hall and say, so that's where your kids live in now. Um, maybe not. Um, <laughs> but that's what it was. So the, this kid Samuel that God gave as an answer to prayer and a gift was then growing up in this house with the priests. And... Eli's family were a bit shady, so he, he had these sons who were corrupt, and what they would do is they'd take from the offerings that were given to God, they nick some of the meat for themselves, so although they had this position of spiritual influence and authority, they would abuse that position 
for their own gain. There's also talk of sexual immorality with uh, a lot of the women around the time. They were abusing their power and position for their own um, self-interest. And Eli, he, he wasn't like that. His heart was in the right place, but he was a pretty ineffective leader. He couldn't really rein his sons in. He was kind of under the thumb a bit. So they still had sway to do whatever they wanted to do. By contrast to that, though, you've got Samuel growing up in this house just with a very uh, different experience. And in chapter 2, verse 26 of 1 Samuel, it talks about what happened with him. It says, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favour with the Lord and also with man. I read that and it reminds me in Luke's gospel, doesn't it? There's a very similar verse of Jesus, how he, he grew in wisdom and stature before God and man. So you've got Samuel growing up in this house that's corrupt, where um, Israel's been led in this way that isn't quite right, but this, this lad's growing up to love God, to walk with God. And then one night he, he hears his name being called, and he's like, I'm, I'm confused, there's someone shouting me, Eli, is this you? Are you trying to say something to me? And Eli says to him, no, it's not me, but if you're hearing someone call you, it, it might be the Lord. Listen out and see what God wants to say to you. And so Samuel learns to hear the voice of God. Now, what God says is that he's going to uh, judge Eli's wicked household and, uh, and kind of wipe him out. So Samuel goes and tells Eli this, and Eli's like, oh, well, if God said it. And so he kind of accepts it still as a word from God. And so you've got this this sense of rejection of Eli's household and election of Samuel. And these throughout the Old Testament, you see these themes come together again and again. One is pushed down, one is raised up, particularly as a judgment upon sin. And Eli's house has led in a sinful way. And so then if we just jump forward to chapter 7 we're in now, we see Samuel, he's grown up now and he's acting as the judge over Israel and it reminds us of some of the judges in the book of Judges, particularly some of the better ones towards the start of the book. What does he do? He calls the people away from idolatry and back to the worship of God. He leads the people in prayer, in fasting, and in repentance. And you're thinking, this is great. This is what we want a leader over the people to do. When the Philistines attacked, the Lord miraculously saved his people Israel uh, and then Samuel went on this circuit and he went around to the different places and he was leading, he was the judge, he was the authority and the one who could settle disputes in the land. Now it was quite geographically limited, all the places that it mentioned were uh, within a day's travel of his home, so he didn't get around the whole of the country, but in a certain geographically constrained area, then it, it worked and he could lead them. So it makes you think at this point in the story, okay, this is looking all right, this isn't too bad, but it makes us ask the question, does this system of judges actually work? Is this a good setup for the people to be in? Now, I think generally the answer is no, it doesn't work, despite Samuel doing pretty well at it. One problem that we see with it uh, is the geography. So if he could only lead in, within a day's ride of his own house, that leaves a lot of the nation with nothing. I think another problem is it's quite generationally limited. So Samuel's one man, and even if he's doing quite well, what happens when he gets old and dies? Because 
there's no succession in the judges. And we saw this pattern go through the book of Judges again and again. The, the land would have rest for a time whilst a judge was there, but then the judge would die and there'd be no one. So the people would just gradually forget about God. They'd drift back into sin. They'd drift back into idolatry and we'd be right back where we started. So it wasn't working from that perspective. Also, the verdict at the end of the book of Judges was pretty clear. We, we need a king. You know, there was no king in the land in those days. Every man did as he pleased. It has a damning indictment on the system. So, no, we need something better than this. And early on in 1 Samuel, we start seeing the hints that God's going to work towards something different. So, in 1 Samuel 2, we get Hannah's song. Now, Hannah's song was a prayer that she prayed uh, when God had answered her prayer for a baby. Uh, and, and in verse 10, she, she says this, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now that's an odd thing to pray in a land where there is no king, that God is going to give strength to his king, but she's foreshadowing something. There's a prophetic element to it in her prayer that God is going to strengthen his king. And then jump forward in the same chapter to verse 35. This is Eli being rebuked by a different prophet who says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. This character of the anointed, the one who God has put his anointing on, is a hint, again, at something bigger than the system of judges. Another verse that's pretty relevant for this is back in Deuteronomy. So when the law was given, a provision was being made for when a king is appointed. So Deuteronomy 17, from verse 14 onwards, says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. I wonder if that reminds you of any of the kings who we will come on to in a little while. But you see, even when God gave the law, he had in mind, this is what will happen when eventually you have a king. So there seems to be this movement through these early books of the Bible that kingship is coming. Now we do get a slight counterpoint at the end. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah. But there also is the point, God disappointed that they wanted a king. Absolutely. He wanted to be over. Absolutely. Yeah, just let's put a pin there for a moment because that's where we're coming to next. Um, but you are, there's, there's a prophetic element to the morning. Um, but before we get to the moment of actually asking for a king, it seems there are these threads that are leading to that moment 
coming in the story. There is one counterpoint to it before we get there, uh, which is just right at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, which says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, what's the main thing about getting a king rather than a judge? The main thing is you have a line of succession. You have someone who can inherit the position after the person currently holding it dies. And we've seen already twice in Samuel, the idea of someone passing on a position to their sons has gone wrong. You had Eli, who was a priest who, yeah, he was a bit flimsy, but generally his heart was in the right place, and then his sons were corrupt. Then you've got Samuel, who's the judge over the land. He appoints his sons to do it, and his sons are not walking with God. So you're getting this in, okay, this might not go so well if it's just passed down biologically to the next generation. You might not get the same heart for God. So there is a little warning sign there already. But as you say, we come to the moment now where they ask for a king, and the way they do it, it's not great. So just turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and let's read how it went. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Imagine starting a conversation with someone. Look, we need to have a meeting. You're old. (laughs) But that's what they do. You're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. That's the really key part of the request, isn't it? We want a king, not because Deuteronomy said, you know, there'll there'll be kingship, not because there was the problem with the the judges and um, kind of the fact that we keep going back to idolatry again and again after each one dies, not because of the impermanence, not because it would be administratively better. We want a king so that we can be like all the other nations. And particularly when it comes to the battles, in in the chapter before, in 1 Samuel 7, the way they were delivered in battle was supernatural. It was miraculous. It was that God had showed up and intervened. And time and again, they'd been fighting against other nations, and they'd gone out to fight, and the, the other nation would have a big army. They'd be outnumbered. They'd look like they don't know what they're doing, and it only worked if God came through. God used the small, God used the insignificant, and God delivered them. And they were saying, hang on, we don't like this sound. We don't like the idea that our only hope is that God's going to show up and God's going to win the day for us. We'd love to be like the other nations where we don't have to rely on God, but we've got horses, where we've got chariots, where we've got military might who can win the day for us. We want to be powerful in the way the nations are powerful. So stuff this system of judges, stuff the idea that God will raise up a deliverer for us. We want a king. That's the heart behind their request, as you rightly say. That was not a good request to bring to God, was it? Uh, They've rejected Samuel as their judge, but more importantly, they've rejected God as their king. They want a human king. So with all these threads saying monarchy, 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 king, 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 this is what we need, all of a sudden the moment comes, and it just feels a bit... 
anticlimactic. It feels like, okay, this wasn't quite all it's cracked up to be. I thought this was going to be such a big, good moment in the story. It feels like it might not be. And so the question hanging over us is, is it going to work? Is this idea of Israel being led by kings going to prove just as flawed as the judges that have come before? Or is there hope now? Is, is things going to be better? And I think the answer is it will stand or fall with the character of the king and how they wield power. If you've got a king after God's own heart who rules in God's way, then there's hope. And if you've got a king who's corrupt, who walks away from God, who leads in a way that's idolatrous, who leads in a way where there's no justice, then the nation will follow and be led astray. It all depends on the king. The prophet Samuel isn't particularly impressed with the request. He, he seems actually harsher than God about it. He, he really wants to lay into the people for what they've asked. But God says, okay, we'll, we'll give the people what they want. Even though what they've asked for isn't great, the way they've asked for it isn't great in particular, we will go along with it. But Samuel's got a warning for the people. And let me just read what Samuel warns them. Verse, verse 10 of 1 Samuel 8. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plough his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king. Sounds a bit bleak, doesn't it? Sounds like you're going to have this king, you're going to put this person over you, and you'll be worse off, because you've given this person power, and they'll exploit you, they'll nick your stuff, they'll make you work for them, and the fruits of your labour won't be your own, but it will be this king's. Watch out. But God lets them have a king, and the first king that they get... To be honest, he looks pretty kingy when you first meet him. If you were writing a job description of king, he would he'd be up there. It was Saul who we meet in chapter 9. We're introducing him. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Uh, and this tallness thing, it comes up quite a few times in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. It's a symbol of human-defined leadership. So what does a human look for? We want someone uh, who's physically imposing, who stands out, who draws the eyes upon them in a room. And Saul certainly had that going on. And also the good looks is mentioned again frequently when it comes to human-centric leadership. 
So he was the obvious candidate in some ways. But there is a little warning sign. He's described as from Benjamin, and he's also described as a man of valour from Benjamin, um, or some translations might have it as uh, a man of wealth from Benjamin, but it's the same kind of idea, which when we read through Judges, and Judges 20 in particular, we had a warning sign that a lot of trouble and a lot of the bleak stories at the end came out of Benjamin, and particularly the same phrase was used, men of valour. So it's just a little hint that this guy might not be what we actually want. And then it's a bit funny because rather than telling about this great leader then stepping in and taking authority and establishing his reign, we get a story about how his dad's lost some donkeys and then sends Saul and a servant to go out and find them. And after searching for ages, he can't even do it. So you've got this man whose job is meant to be ruling a nation and he's incapable of finding a few donkeys. And you read that, you're like... Like we said at the start, why, why choose this information? Why, why tell this story? It's meant to say he might not be all that good as a king. He might not be able to do what he's meant to do. And yet, uh, he meets Samuel while he's out. Samuel uh, anoints him, say, you are going to be the king. You're going to rule and save the people. And he gives him a few signs to confirm it. And then they gather all the people together. They say, we're going to cast lots to see who the king will be. We'll, we'll do it by tribe, then we'll do it by clan, then we'll do it by family and household, and then we'll see who it is. And they go through all this process, and it lands on Saul. And so they look around for him, and he's not there. He's hiding in the baggage, right? So we started out with some lost donkeys, now we've got a lost king. The king's missing uh, when he's meant to be there. I mean, thank goodness we don't have a uh, leader who would hide in the baggage or a fridge or anything like that. Things don't change, do they? Uh, but he, he's a hiding. He's abdicating his responsibility. And so then at the end, you've got verse uh, 24. We're in chapter 10 now. And I think that this is just... Um, Samuel being pretty sarcastic. I don't know if you, if you get the sarcastic vibes. The king who's just been hiding in the baggage has been brought out, has been anointed king. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So then Saul's reign, if we had to characterise what he was like as king, there were some military successes. He did quite well in some battles. Chapter 11 in particular uh, gives us a feeling for how it was meant to be. And we start to get a glimmer of hope. Um, but by chapter 13, the Philistines are oppressing the people. And what's Saul doing? He's hiding again in a cave. Hiding seems to be his go-to thing when problems come. And all the people are hiding with him. And then it's Jonathan, Saul's son, who has to deliver the people. You remember the story with Jonathan and his armour bearer going into battle and seeing the Lord give them victory. That's what happens. Also, uh, in chapter 14, we hear of some other victories that he has. But despite the military success, I think the other characteristic of his reign that we'd have to say is there was theological failure. So he did well in some battles, but he did badly in his relationship with God. So in chapter 13, verses 13 uh, and 14, we see a rejection of Saul because Samuel's basically turned up late. And so Saul thought, well, we need to do a sacrifice. Samuel's not here. 
I'll do it myself. Despite the law saying, no, no, this is a job for the priests, this is someone who needs to be from the right tribe, done in the right way. He's like, forget that, there's a job to do, I'm going to do it. And so he, he conducts this sacrifice that he shouldn't. And then when Samuel gets there, so Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The kingdom is taken from him. A little while later, there's another battle and God had given the, him the instruction to destroy all the plunder from Amalek. Saul doesn't comply. He basically keeps the nice stuff. He keeps all the stuff that's worth a lot of money. And then when someone calls him out on it and says, Saul, what are you doing? He said, oh yeah, yeah, I've kept it so I can sacrifice it to the Lord. And whether he's telling the truth or not, God had said, destroy it. But he didn't do it. And that brings us to verse 22, which is one of the key verses in all of 1 Samuel. It's quoted a lot throughout the Bible. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of lamb fat of rams. It's the same idea as the first time. Rather than actually listen to what God said, it's like Saul saying, no, no, I've got a better idea than what you said, God. I'll, I'll do this. And, and yes, this will be for you. But he's not wanting to obey God. He's not wanting to recognise God's voice over him. And it's like he sees God as kind of a blessing dispenser that if he can do the right thing, he can somehow manipulate God into acting a certain way and giving him what he wants. But he doesn't see God as someone to have a relationship with. And so eventually what happens is he, he grabs hold of Samuel's robe and it tears. And this is a prophetic picture of the kingdom being taken away from him. So that's the first whirl at kingship. That's the first go. The people have asked for a king. They got Saul. And it's not gone that well. Can we do better? Can we, can we try kingship again, but with someone who will do it God's way? Well, the answer is yes. This is where David comes into the story. And we've got an awkward kind of situation for the next few chapters because David gets anointed as king, but Saul's still around. Saul actually is reigning and on the throne. And you've got David, who's ready to be king, but not actually reigning yet. I love the dramatic music for the entrance of David. It's, it's a good soundtrack for the moment, isn't it? <laughs> That's all right. So what happens then is Samuel goes to the house of David's father, Jesse, and says, God said that one of your sons will be the next king. Can you bring them out so I can see who it is that God has chosen? And Jesse doesn't even bother inviting David to that meeting. He leaves him out in the field with the sheep. It's like, no, no, it'll be one of the older ones. He's got some sons like Eliab and Abinadab who, they've got like kind of Saul vibes about them. They're big, they're tall, they're imposing. Humanly speaking, you'd be like, yeah, I can see you as a king. And so he expects it will be one of them. David's just a, a young teenager. Uh, he, he was a guy who just loved to be out in the field, singing songs, worshipping to God, playing his lyre. But it wasn't someone who would be thought of as a king at all by human 
considerations. Again, another key verse here is verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, and this is talking about Eliab, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the Lord seen something in David's heart and said, this is the one who I've chosen. Now what we find is because God's spirit is on David and God's presence is with David, we see he starts to have success in what he does. He goes and ministers to Saul and finds favour with him. He saves the people in a battle. So this is the David and Goliath story. When Goliath of the Philistines steps forward and says, right, any of you fight me one-on-one and you can deliver the people if you can defeat me. Whose job was that to go and fight him? You know, we've read the judges. We expect the leader of God's people would step up to the battle. And when we were introduced to Saul as this man who's so big, so mighty, so imposing, you'd think it's his job to go and deal with Goliath in faith, wouldn't you? But what's Saul doing? He's hiding away in the war camp like Saul hides away. And so there's this kind of awkward standoff of no one going to meet the challenge. David goes forward and in faith he sees the people delivered. He's doing already what the king should be doing. As a result, he becomes a national hero. People start singing songs about his mighty deeds. He wins favour with Saul's son, Jonathan, in a covenant of friendship. He wins favour with Saul's daughter, Michal, who he marries. And Saul, by this point, is getting absolutely furious. He's angry, he's jealous, he sees this kind of wave of momentum behind David. He's feeling insecure in his own position. And so he attempts to kill David. He he makes a number of attempts on David's life. But each time, David's able to escape. He's helped in doing so by Jonathan and by Michal. But he has to go on the run. So then we get a whole section of chapters where David's fleeing from Saul. We see him pop into the temple and eat the bread off the altar. You weren't meant to do that apparently, but they turn a blind eye to it. And then he goes to to the Philistine land and says, hey, can I stay with you? And they're like, aren't you that guy who just killed Goliath? And then he pretends to be mad, but they've rumbled him. So then he, he has to leave again. And so he goes and hides in a cave and he gathers this kind of unlikely army in the cave of uh, Abinadab, in the cave of Adullam, sorry. Uh, <coughs> then he's going to Moab, but then uh, a prophet tells him to go back to Israel and he's hiding in the forest. Whilst there, the Philistines attack again and Saul's too busy chasing David. So David goes and rescues the people and then carries on fleeing again, but Saul picks up the scent. By chapter 24, And then chapter 26, we get two moments that David has the opportunity to kill Saul. So one of them is just kind of comedy gold, really. Um, Saul is chasing after David. He's got a whole army with him. David's hiding. And so David knows that Saul is near and he finds this cave and gets to hide in the cave. Meanwhile, Saul and his army are passing. Saul decides he needs a wee. And rather than kind of just find a tree, he decides there's a nice cave there. I'm going to go and have a wee in the cave. And so he's there doing what he's doing. David's a little bit further in the cave, crouching behind the rocks. And he's like, it's Saul. He's having a wee. And so I could kill him. But then something in him stops him from doing it. He realises this wouldn't be the right course of action. But he does sneak up and he does cut off a little bit of Saul's robe 
And that was the symbol that happened before, with Saul tearing Samuel's robe. It's like the kingdom will be taken away. When Saul leaves the cave, David runs after him and was like, Saul, Saul, while you, ha- while you were having a wee, you weren't looking, but I was, I was stood right behind you. I cut off a little bit of your cloak. And Saul was like, oh, wow, you could have killed me. You're more righteous than me. I'm really sorry, David. And then kind of calls off his troops very briefly. Um, he does chase him again a little bit later. And then this time, again, uh, David has an opportunity to sneak into his war camp and kill him. But he doesn't do it. He just sneaks in and grabs his water jar from next to his bed and his spear and was like, Saul, I nicked your stuff. I could have killed you, but I didn't. But this shows I had the opportunity to do so. Sandwiched between those two chapters, we've got this uh, incident with David going to the house of a guy called Nabal. Now, Nabal was a guy who, he he wasn't a pleasant fellow. He didn't want to welcome David. He didn't want to give him any hospitality, despite the kindness that David had shown him. And David's instinct was, I need to kill this guy. I need to wipe him out. But Nabal's wife, Abigail, sent a message to David, and she basically talked him down from doing this thing. But the, the whole of that story, and have a read of it at some point, is meant to be a little bit of a parable of what's going on with Saul. And one of the commentators says this about it. David is stopped through Abigail's intervention and both she and David ultimately recognise it as Yahweh's intervention. Abigail's involvement goes beyond simply stopping David from killing her husband. She sees a deeper issue where violence can never be justified in achieving Yahweh's purposes. To do so means using evil, and good cannot be achieved this way. Having reflected on some of those earlier books of the Bible, books like Joshua, books like Judges, one of the things that we notice is these are violent books. There's a lot of uh, things going on that look brutal. And we reach a point now in 1 Samuel where this issue seems to be coming to the fore, where some reflection starts to be happening on how do we do God's will? Can we just use any means? Can we use violence to bring forth God's purposes? And David's coming to the conclusion that the answer is no. That he shouldn't take it upon himself to go and kill Saul and bring forward what God's already said will happen, David being king. But rather he should trust in God to bring about God's purposes using God's own means. I think that's quite an important turning point in the whole thrust of the narrative. But then after that, David goes to live with the Philistines for a bit. He finds some favour with one of their kings. But then he's put in this really awkward situation because there's a war between the Philistines and the Israelites. He's living with the Philistines. He's now one of their commanders. And so he'd be expected to go out and fight. He doesn't want to go out and fight against his own people. But if he doesn't, he might die. So he's in this really awkward moment. But there's an escape for him when all the other Philistine commanders say, hang on, no, 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 we we don't want David on our side. He might turn on us. Let's just let him sit this one out. And so he gets his escape. Saul, on the other hand, has become desperate. Samuel's dead at this point, so he's not getting any word from God through Samuel. He's banished things like necromancers and mediums and the occult. And He's like, I need some kind of word of some divine guidance. I don't know what to do. So he sneaks to this Philistine town and consults a medium, say, could you summon the spirit of Samuel for me? And so the medium does, and this supposed spirit of Samuel appears and says, 
yeah, you really shouldn't have done that. You're going to die in this battle and your sons will die as well. And that's what happens. They're struck down in the battle. So then that's one Samuel. Let's jump into two Samuel. And I've got a little exercise for you to do in a minute. But let's just kind of get the start of what is going on. Don't you think it's strange that you've got the books of Samuel and actually Samuel's dead by about chapter 8? Yeah, <laughs> I do. We've got two Samuel, he doesn't feature in his... I, I don't know. It's just... it, it, it is strange. Um, let, let's remember that in the original, it was one book. It was the book of Samuel. Um, so although we call it two Samuel, yeah. it wasn't originally that. But yeah, you're right. It's... Um, it's, it's named after the starting character, I guess, and then progresses. Um, so what happens in the first couple of chapters of 2 Samuel? Basically, you've got David, who's anointed as king in Hebron, and one of Saul's remaining sons, Ishbosheth, is made king over um, the rest of the land, and someone then kills him and thinks David will be pleased. And David is not pleased at all. David says, no, no, you can't do this. You've, you've struck down someone trying to do God's purposes with violence again. I'm not happy. And so he punished the person who did it. But because someone had done this, it, it did mean that David got to be king of the whole land. Uh, and in chapter 5, we see he wins some more battles and in particular conquers Jerusalem and makes that his capital city. I want to pause the story there now, and I've got you to um, have another little exercise you'll find in your notes, um, the one that says the story of the ark. Because as well as the human story of what God's doing through these different leaders of Israel, 1 and 2 Samuel also tell the story of the journey of the ark of the covenant. Uh, and just in case you don't know what the ark of the covenant was, it was this, this box that contained some of the most sacred items from Israel's history. So there was the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written, there was some of the manna from heaven, and there was Aaron's staff. And this would normally be within the most holy place in the tabernacle. And it symbolised God's presence. And actually it was more than just symbolic, it was something representative of the presence of God. And in 1 and 2 Samuel it goes on a little adventure. So I've noted down a number of uh, Bible verses, uh, mostly from 1 Samuel 4, 5 and 6, uh, with then uh, a few from 2 Samuel 6. I want you to read through those verses and then um, just think about how does what we've seen there contrast with the rest of the story of 1 and 2 Samuel. And then if you get time, just think about the attitudes people show to the ark and how that might relate to, to how we're tempted to think of God. So, let's see what time we're on. Yeah, should we take about 10 minutes doing that? And then uh, after that, we'll just kind of reflect a little bit more and then have a break. Anything strike people about this? They seem to have almost a superstitious attitude. Absolutely, yeah. If, if we bring the ark to battle, then that will mean God must bless us and we must win. That's exactly what they're doing, isn't it? Yeah. And does it work? <laughs> no. <laughs> There's a genuine problem here that they don't understand the right place for God's presence. Yes. They don't know where they should be and they're afraid of the consequences. Even David is afraid of the consequences of what happens when God's presence is in the right place. Yeah. 
sees the consequences of what happens. He goes, oh. Yeah. I don't want that here. Right. I mean, I don't want that right with me. Yeah. Yes. Until he then sees what happens in Obed Edom's garage when the, the ark's there and then all the blessings come. He's like, ah, maybe I do want it after all. Yeah. It's like they're ascribing the, the blessings and the judgments of the Mark of to the ark. Yes. Absolutely. So, so the power's in the box, not in the God whose presence it is. Yeah. Yeah. And the elements of being pure and sort of impure in the presence of God, those that are impure, yeah. those yes. that are pure and follow his commandments. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the, the impurity side of it, they're, they're going in the face of a lot of the commandments. So when they carry the ark the way they carry it, it's not just that they're thinking, oh, we'll, we'll do it this way. There were rules in the Levitical law about how you carry the ark, about who should carry the ark. None of that was in their mind at all. It's just pragmatically, let's get the thing where we want it to be. He reached out to touch it. That wasn't the first instance where they transgressed in this. They, they've flown in the face of the commands numbers of times in the process. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of ceremonial disobedience, impurity going on there. Yeah. Absolutely. They are, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Did you say that the ark was symbolic of God's presence? I would say it's more than symbolic. Um, I think the Bible, this is a little tangent, but we're probably worth it. I think the, the Bible has things that have a category that transcends symbolism in a way that we, we like to do symbolic. This is a picture that represents a different thing. Whereas I think God often works through those pictures as a portal into the reality of them. So an example of that would be communion. Now there's a lot of theological differences of opinion on what communion is. But if you look at the, the debate around the time of the Reformation, you'd get some on one side of it who would say, okay, basically this is just, we're, we're, we're eating some bread, we're drinking some wine, and all that's doing is helping us to remember the reality of what Christ has done for us. Then you get people a bit further on, so well, it, it's more than just that. It's more than just a symbol that reminds but in some way, there's the spiritual reality of feeding on Christ happening as we eat the, the bread and the wine. Then you get people even further who go into the actual presence of his body and blood. But I, I think there's this kind of ground here that is, yes, it's a symbol, but through the symbol, something of the actual reality of it spiritually is mediated. I think when it comes to the ark and the presence of God, it's more than just this box reminds us of the presence of God. But through this box, there is something of the, the manifestation of the presence as well. Um, yeah. And I think the thing that struck me when I read these passages is just the contrast between the kind of 
bumbling Israelites who have all their kind of plans of we'll go to battle, we'll take the ark with us, we'll definitely win and, and their failures. And then meanwhile, you've got the ark going on its adventure, like uh, kicking the heads off these gods of the, of the nations around them. And despite all the flaws and failures of the people, it seems like God is utterly sovereign and God's power will not be stopped by human mistakes and human wins. So I find a real encouraging thread running through a story that shows such flaws in, hum- in humanity. Um, but then coming off, off this, um, David finally getting the ark back, he wants to build a temple uh, and he wants to create this home. We, we've had the tabernacle and we'll come more onto this in the second part of the morning. Um, but the tabernacle was really a, a, a travelling uh, place for, for the Ark of the Covenant to be. And now that they're well established in the land, he says, let's have a more permanent building. Let's have a temple. And it's a good idea, but God says, no, you've been a man of war. You've got blood on your hands. I love the vision, but your son will be the one to do it. And he makes David a promise that he'll have a son who will reign on his throne forever. And if you read through 2 Samuel 7, you, you, you'll read through it one day, you think, oh yeah, this is definitely about Solomon, there's loads of stuff in here that so obviously points to him. And then you'll spot a few bits, you know, they don't quite fit Solomon. And then another day you'll read it, you're like, this is definitely about Jesus, like, oh, there's so much that points to him. And then you'll see a few verses that don't quite work. And it's kind of a mashup between the two. So elements of it were fulfilled in Solomon, and elements point beyond Solomon and were fulfilled only in Christ. Chapter 8, he wins a few more military victories to the point that by the end of 2 Samuel chapter 8, the land that he controls is exactly what was promised in Genesis 15 to Abraham. Genesis 15 verses 18 to 21 say, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So the land that they're in is exactly what was promised. They've got this vision of the temple. The ark is back. They've got a king ruling after God's own heart. He fulfills his promise to Jonathan by showing mercy to to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. At this point, how do we think things are going? You should have a a bit in your notes that's just like a reflect how things are going. Just jot down maybe a sentence. How do we feel about the story at this moment in time? And then what we're going to do is take a little break and we will come back at, we'll come back at 10.30. So you've got um, nearly a quarter of an hour. We'll come back at 10.30 and we'll pick up the story from there. Right, let's crack on then. I I left you at the end of the last session very deliberately at a specific moment in the story when it seemed like everything was building up really well. It was the high point in David's reign, probably the high point in the whole story of Old Testament Israel when you've got the ark back, you've got the land, you've got the king, it's hearts with God, everything's going really well. Now, the shape of David's story is actually a tragedy story where it goes up and comes crashing down. And we're at the pivot point now where it turns 
and the story is going to go into decline. And it all comes back to one particular incident. Everything that goes wrong for David and probably actually for Israel from this moment onwards can be pinned back to this story, which is 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, to set the context, the kings were meant to be leading their army in battle at this point in the year. David, he's gone into Saul mode and he's not where he should be. He's evaded his responsibility. He's back in Jerusalem and he's letting his men go out and fight and die, but he's now not willing to take responsibility himself. So that's the context. I'm going to read from verses 2 to 5 of 2 Samuel 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So that's the the story where it all started to go wrong for David. It's a story that is quite famous and often is portrayed in the media and the way the media portray it is wrong. You see films and the film poster. There's one from I think like the 1950s and the film poster is like um, Bathsheba's lying there as some kind of glamorous seductress trying to lead King David astray and he's in this pose that looks like he's a Premier League footballer. It's a ridiculous thing. But you've got the song as well that tells the story. And we, we all know uh, the song Hallelujah, don't we? He saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. That's the way we think of this story. Now, let's just get a few things right from the text. Firstly, she wasn't on the roof. It doesn't say that, despite what we all think. We imagine her up there. No, no, no. David was on the roof, is what it says. And he saw her. Where was she? Likely in her house, where you'd have a bath. That's kind of the normal thing. He's the one. He was walking on the roof, probably pacing, restless, worrying about the battle. And while he's there, he sees her. And something inside him happens. There's a lust that starts developing within him. So he sends his people to go and get her. So probably armed palace guards turn up at Bathsheba's house saying the king is summoning you to his palace. Let's think about the power dynamic at play here. David as the king can have exactly whatever he wants. Bathsheba has no power to accept or refuse. She's just taken along and led into David's plan. David raped Bathsheba. He wanted to cover it up then by getting her husband back from the war. He found, he's found out she's pregnant. He doesn't want to, to have the, the kind of gossip around that he's done this thing. So he tries to get Uriah back to, to sleep with her. Uriah is a man of honour and integrity. He's like, no, 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 my men are all out fighting in the battle. You're trying to give me a privilege that my men don't have. Why should I be in Jerusalem while the men are at the battle? Hint, hint, David. Well, you know, Mr. I'm going to stay in Jerusalem. So Uriah won't do it. So eventually David sends orders with Uriah to the leader of the army, say, right, next battle, put Uriah where the fighting's hardest, then tell all the other men to leg it and leave Uriah, and we're going to have him killed. That's what David does. Do you remember at the start I said occasionally you get a chapter here where you get told what God thinks about it? This is the one. So the last verse of this chapter, uh, verse 27, ends with, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
Yeah, you're telling me. So what happens then? The prophet Nathan goes to confront David. He tells him uh, a story about someone uh, who took a lamb from a poorer person. And David gets mad and indignant, says, there's no justice. Someone should sort this out. And Nathan's like, um, David, it's, it's you. This is a story about you. Uh, and it cuts him to the heart. He realises that what he's done was wrong. And he repents. And this is fairly unusual in the story for someone to be confronted with their sin and actually repent and turn back to God. Now David does. And Psalm 51, uh, if you read it at some point, that is David's psalm of repentance. He's asking God uh, to forgive his sin uh, and he is forgiven. Nathan declares that God has forgiven him. And yet the effects of what David has done then permeate throughout his reign. The child that Bathsheba was bearing died and then uh, David married Bathsheba, took her as his wife and they had another child together who was Solomon. But in chapter 12 verse 10 this is what Nathan says to David that then shapes the rest of the story. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So the sword will be over David's house from now on. And that, that's what we see play out in the rest of 2 Samuel. In chapter 13, you've got David's son, Amnon, rapes Tamar, who's David's daughter. So they're um, kind of half-brother and sister. And then what does David do about it? Nothing. David doesn't deal with this situation, probably because he now is in a position where he lacks the moral authority to speak into this because he's guilty of a very similar crime himself. So he doesn't deal with Amnon for what he's done to Tamar. So his other son, Absalom, who is Tamar's full brother and would be the heir to the throne, he said, well, if David isn't going to deal with this, I'll need to take matters into my own hands and I'll need to deal with this. So then he takes his half-brother Amnon on a journey and he kills him. And then he has to flee because he realizes, hang on, David's not going to be that happy. I've just killed his son. I, I, I need to leg it. So then for a couple of years, Absalom is away. Eventually, there's a sort of semi-reconciliation happen. He's, he's brought back into Jerusalem. Things are still pretty awkward. And he starts stirring up the people against David. He starts like saying, hey, you, you know all the stuff that you need? You know, um, you know the holes in the roads and uh, the, the health service and the schools? They're not great, are they? Oh, it's all to do with the guy in charge. If, if I was in charge, I, I'd do this, I'd do that. But, you know, David, he's just not interested, is he? And so this public sentiment against David starts to be stirred up by Absalom. And then Absalom then goes to Hebron and has himself declared king. And all these people now who he's uh, turned against David are like, yes, Absalom will be great. Let's make Absalom the king now. And David has to leg it. Then Absalom enters the city of Jerusalem. He moves into David's house. That's quite a provocative statement, isn't it? Say, I'm in charge now. I'm the man of the house. Then he goes up onto the roof and he sleeps with all of David's concubines. The, the same roof that David was on when he saw Bathsheba. That's a symbol, isn't it, of this is because of that. This all came from that moment. And then Absalom sends an army to chase after David 
And in another slightly gory, but also slightly slapstick scene, as Absalom's riding into this battle, his head gets stuck between two branches of a tree, and his horse kind of just goes on, so he's there dangling. And then Joab, who's the commander of David's army, spears him with a javelin, and he dies. So David has won the war, but he's lost his son, another son, in the process, and he, he grieves his son but the question now hanging over us is what happens now because all these people have kind of turned against David they said we don't want you as king we want Absalom as king and now Absalom's gone can David have the credibility to be back as king well he works pretty hard towards regaining the trust of the people particularly in Judah he forgives a lot of the people who'd been on Absalom's side and he ends up back where he was at the start of his reign, really, where the tribe of Judah are pretty loyal to him, and the rest of the nation, maybe not quite so much. And the seeds of the split between Judah and Israel that we see a bit later in the story seem to be sown at this moment. And then towards the end of the book, we just kind of see like we're back in the ordinary business of rule now. David sees off a rebellion. He writes a historic injustice. And then his men have a word with him, saying, David, whenever we go into battle now, it's kind of embarrassing, you're old, you're weary, we we have to fight to protect you, you're not bringing what you used to, you should retire from the fighting. And he does, and then we get his song of deliverance and a record of his last words and his mighty men in chapter 23, which seems like the credits are rolling on the story of David, except we get one extra scene at the end, which is David sinning again. He, He has this census which he does out of his pride to, to show, hey, I'm the man, this is what I have, and God isn't happy. So we're still left on that slightly sour note. I asked you a few minutes ago to write down just a little reflection on how you thought the story was going at that particular moment. We've got another little box now and an opportunity. In light of then what happened to David in the rest of his reign, Where do you think we're left at in the story now? Just note something down there. And I have another um, little pause and reflect thing for you to do. Um, I know in the last one I gave you a lot of things to read, so the the end result was there was quite a lot of silence while people were reading. This one you've only got three verses to read, so let's make it a much more conversational time uh, with the people on your tables. But there's three verses from the New Testament, uh, basically Jesus' teaching on leadership, power, and weakness. Mark 10, verses 43 to 45. Just have a think about how we see this teaching play out in some of the different characters that we've met in 1 and 2 Samuel. And then if you get time, just reflect on what that might mean for Christian leadership. Let's take maybe just five minutes on that. All right, let me introduce you to the next books of the Bible we are going to look at, uh, which are First and Second Kings. These were books that were written in light of the exile. So uh, that's the spoiler alert. At the end, the people are going to get taken away in exile. And following the story of 1 and 2 Samuel, which seems like we've been on this trajectory to get the people in the land, to get the people well established, now all of a sudden they're away in Babylon, That raises questions, doesn't it? How do we get from there to here? And that's going to be the purpose of 1 and 2 Kings, to answer that question. 
According to the ESV Study Bible, the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon in 586 BC raised several questions. Was Israel's God not in fact in control of history, as Moses had claimed? If the God of Moses did exist, and was good, and all-powerful, how was it that God's chosen city and temple had been destroyed, and his chosen royal family had all but come to its end? The books of Kings respond to such questions, explaining why Israel was defeated. Israel's God is indeed in control of nature and history, there are no other true gods anywhere. It is this good and all-powerful God who has overseen the destruction of his chosen city and his temple and Israel's exile to Babylon. Israel's sin has caused these punishments. So that's a summary of where we're going. The books start with David. David is at this point very old and so the question of succession is what's on people's mind. Now, his eldest son would have been Absalom, but we had all the stuff in 2 Samuel where Absalom made his play for the throne then and ended up dying. So next in line would be Adonijah. And Adonijah has this moment where he gets himself declared king, but it looks a bit shady. Um, one reason is his good looks are pointed out, which following on from 1 and 2 Samuel, that tends to be a bad sign. It's looking at the wrong things. And he didn't invite quite a lot of important people. So uh, the main priest at the time was Zadok, and he didn't get invited to this ceremony. The main prophet was Nathan. He didn't get invited either. The mighty men who'd been in David's army, none of them got invited, and nor did Adonijah's brother Solomon. It's basically like, let's just kind of on the quiet anoint him as king and then tell everyone it's done and see if they roll with it. They didn't roll with it. David had made a promise to Bathsheba that the next king would be Solomon. And, um, and so that's what happens. David declares that Solomon will be the king to succeed him. And so over the next three years or so, we've got the story of Solomon dealing with Adonijah, Solomon establishing his rule. And that's what we hear about in the first couple of chapters of 1 Kings. But let's think about the reign of Solomon itself. And we're in chapter 3 now. There, there were some real high highs and some real low lows of Solomon's reign. So chapter 3 verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What do we think about that? Not good, is it? What did that verse in Deuteronomy tell them not to do? Yeah, don't, don't look back to Egypt. Don't put your trust in them. Don't get to Egypt for horses. Don't marry women from the nations around you and be led astray by their gods. It's like the number one person he could choose to marry if he wants to break that command is Pharaoh's daughter. And that's what he's done. He made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house. That was his priority. And the house of the Lord. So that's where we're coming back into the good. He will build the, the house of the Lord. But first he was on his own house and the wall round Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. So the, the system wasn't what God had said it should be. They were making these sacrifices they shouldn't. Verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. Well, that sounds good. That sounds like it's going to go well. 
walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he made sacrifices, he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So it's like he loved God, but there shouldn't be a but after that. But that's what Solomon, he did love God, kind of, but this stuff was going on. God said to Solomon, you can ask anything of me. And Solomon said, okay, well, what I want is wisdom. This really pleased God. God was really happy with the request. He could have asked for power. He could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for glory. But he said, no, I've got this responsibility to lead the people. And I want to know how to do it well. Would you give me wisdom? God commended him for that. And then he demonstrated his wisdom in uh, the, the famous case, the two women both claiming that the baby was theirs. He says, okay, well, let's just chop it in half and you can have half each. And then the real mother of the child says, no, 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 give it to the other woman. He, he was showing his wisdom to navigate a difficult situation. That was a gift of God. And so that's a good sign. In chapter four, we then get a list of Solomon's officials. We're told a lot of people who worked for him. We're told about his wealth. He was very rich. We're told about his knowledge. He knew a lot of stuff. And we're told about his reputation. A lot of people admired Solomon. And you read it. And at first glance, like in the past, when I've read that chapter, I've put that in the good column. I've thought, yeah, things are going well. He's the king. Of course he should have all these officials. Of course he should have all the wealth. Of course he should have all the knowledge and reputation. More recently, I've just got that warning that Samuel gave just ringing in my ears a little bit. When you get a king over you, well, he'll take your wealth. He'll take your possessions. He'll take your crops. He'll take the labor of your hands and he'll accumulate it all to himself. And I'm starting to think, well, okay, we've got this list of the wealth of Solomon. Is it really such a good thing for the people of God that this is the case for their king? And then in chapter 5, we see he's wanting to prepare for the temple that David had prepared him for. And what does it say? Verse 13, it says, King Solomon drafted forced labour out of all of Israel. Oh, hang on a second. This might not be so good for the people under his reign as we thought. And the draft numbered 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. There'd be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hill country, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. And at the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So that's what was happening. And again, I'm happy that the temple's been made, but I'm reading it and it doesn't sound like this kind of ideal of a, a godly kingship by which the people are lifted up. It seems like the people are harshly treated and pushed down. It's even got slight Egypt vibes to it, the way the Pharaoh treated the people. We're seeing something of that in Solomon's reign. And yet, the temple gets built. And this really was the high point in Solomon's reign. You've got the two sitting together. He loved the Lord, but... He built the temple, but, and yet the temple, we, we, we can't argue having the temple is 
a huge step forward. So just take a minute maybe and reflect on the temple. You should have a couple of questions about the temple, looking at the prayer of dedication, what it was for, uh, a few verses to read, and then some verses about how the kings actually acted in relation to or around these purposes for the temple. So uh, let's take a little while to do that. Let's say, I'll give you 10 minutes on that one as well. So just do it in, in your tables, maybe in dialogue with the people around you. Well, let's just chat about some of this together then. You might not have had a chance to look up every reference, but that's, that's all right. What, what would you say from the prayer that Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple was the point of the temple? What was it for? Repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness, yeah, very good. And that would be particularly that the people could come and repent and be forgiven. It was a place for that, wasn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. There was a war or a famine mm-hmm. or any other kind of disaster. Yeah. Turns to God and just yeah. there. Right, so it's a place for prayer for whatever's going on. Whatever the circumstance is, bring your prayer to the temple. Absolutely. So it struck me a bit like a, a sort of a, a holy telephone box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God, don't live here, but if we go here or even look here, yes. then that's a surrogate for us looking at you. So yeah. when we look at this place, yes. that's us looking at you. Right. And the, the, I don't know, it, it, it yeah. suddenly struck me a sort of shade of Mecca. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Was, you know, wherever we are in the country, if we turn to Jerusalem and yes. turn to where the temple is, then here is, yeah. you know, the, something about facing in that direction. Absolutely, yeah. And as we'll come on to in the systematic thing where we look at the presence of God that's not the way the presence of God operates today but in that time the presence of God dwelt in a very particular place so it made sense to have that posture to the place didn't it yeah so so I think we can say it was a place of God's presence that was a place of prayer for repentance for salvation from disaster for deliverance from war whatever's going on it's a place and who was it a place of prayer for the people and your servant so we've got the the two your servant and your people and your servant in particular would be a a way of referring to the king so it would be both a place of prayer for the king and the people so it would be both okay so that first list of verses then what did we find the kings were actually doing with regard to the temple Right. Okay, so you've got an enemy here, and the temple is meant to be a place that the king will go and pray for deliverance. Instead, the king is thinking, right, if I plunder the temple, if I take the resources and pay off the army to go away, then I can somehow use the temple to get my own kind of deliverance. That doesn't work, by the way. That's like giving a bully your lunch money and expecting them to not come back tomorrow for more lunch money. But the kings tried it, and unsuccessfully. They, they used what was in the temple, but without reference to the god that the temple gave them access to. Yeah. What about the second list? What did we notice there? The second list is all about the high places. And so the idea was that the temple was this place to go, and yet the majority of kings we see 
still went to other places. They, they went to the high places. They didn't utilize the temple for what the temple was for, but they bypassed it instead. And did anyone have a look at the last one? There's just one reference. Yeah. Yeah, so it was Josiah who saw the Lord. Hezekiah, in that verse, it's just a simple one, um, but it really profoundly struck me last summer when I heard someone teaching on it. Sorry, my page is sticking together here. 2 Kings 19, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Now, Hezekiah was over two centuries after Solomon. Lots of kings have lived and died in that time. The temple's built right at the start of one kings. Hezekiah's right at the end of two kings. That's the first time we have it recorded. In fact, it's the only time we have it recorded that any of the kings actually went and utilised the temple for what it was for. It's the only recorded instance of a king going to God in the temple with the problems. And what happens? The nation is delivered. <laughs> You'd have thought that some of the others might have thought of it. But we're the same, aren't we? We have access to God in prayer. How often do we neglect it, thinking that other things will save us instead? Um, so that's the temple. That was a little kind of... Pause, but let's pick up the narrative again with Solomon. So, a few of the things it tells us about Solomon after he dedicated the temple. He did more building work. Yeah, maybe that's all right. He used slave labour to do it. It's bad. The Queen of Sheba came and was pretty impressed with Solomon and his reign. That's good. Seemed like she's more impressed with the king than the god who he worships. Maybe not so good. And then we get to the real nub of the matter in chapter 11. His heart was turned away. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Now, morally, that's awful. I bet that was an admin, an admin nightmare for him, keeping track of them all, wasn't it? And what they were up to. That, I, I can't see practically how it worked. But <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. 
And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. That's what's happened. He's married all these foreign women. Um, probably more a political trust in alliances issue at the heart of it than anything else. But his trust isn't in God. It's in the nations around him. And he's led astray to worship the gods of the nations. Not going well, is it? So what's God going to do? about this because remember God's made David a promise that a son of yours will reign forever the way Solomon's acted you'd expect God to say right if I was done with Saul for what he did surely God would be done with Solomon now for what he's done how will God uh, well verse 11 and 12 tell us the answer therefore the Lord said to Solomon since this has been your practice and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant yet for the sake of David your father I will not do it in your days but I will tear it out of the hand of your son however I will not tear away all the kingdom but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem which I've chosen so the nation is going to be divided you're going to have the northern kingdom, which is going to be ten tribes that are taken away from Solomon's dynasty and David's dynasty and given into the hand of someone else. And that will be the nation that we call Israel. And you've got the southern kingdom, which stays on the Davidic line, and that's going to be called Judah. Now, you might be thinking, hang on, hang on, ten tribes, one tribe, weren't there twelve? Yes, there were 12. In Judges, near the end of it, we saw the tribe of Benjamin pretty much get obliterated. So they're not counted in the calculation. They actually kind of emerged into Judah at this point. But you've got the kingdom split. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes command of Judah. And he's given some advice by some old wise people saying look Solomon treated the people pretty harshly if you want to reign well just kind of ease off the burden on the people a bit create a bit of space for people to live and prosper and then they'll be loyal to you he had some young advisors well I don't listen to that if you want to be in control you've got to clamp down you've got to show them who's boss be even harsher than Solomon he listened to the advice of the younger advisors and he turned the people against him, basically. So then the ten tribes did, as God had said, appoint a different king, and that was King Jeroboam. And so he became king of the northern king. Now, Jeroboam was a bad king. And in chapter 12, verses 26 to 29, we see what he was like. Um, well, I'll read from verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. He went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So... The king took counsel and made two calves of gold, golden calves. We should be getting some alarm bells ringing when we see that, shouldn't we? And he said to the people, you've got up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. So 
he said, look, I want to be king. And if they've got to keep going to Jerusalem, their loyalty will go back to that. So if we get this alternative religious system set up, that cuts off the tie with the temple, cuts off the tie with God ultimately, so I can keep their loyalty. Jeroboam was described really as the anti-David, you could say. He was the prototype of a bad king, a king who didn't follow God, a king who led people astray. So with future kings, often you hear phrases like, he walked in the ways of David, or he walked in the ways of Jeroboam. It's which of the two are you going to be most like? Well, then what we get for much of the rest of 1 and 2 Kings, and if you've read the books, you'll be familiar with this, you get a lot of short biographical information about different kings that can be hard to keep track of because it seems to be flitting between kings in Israel, kings in Judah, who follows who, what's going on. Usually we're given how long they reigned for, how old they were when they began to reign, who their predecessor was, who their successor was, and a short little snippet of the moral character of their reign. Were they godly or were they ungodly? And that's for most of them all that we're told. Now for some of them we are given a few extra little stories and bits of info. But to help you keep track of it, in the notes I've basically gone through and laid them side by side because the story is just done in chronological order, it's jumping between them. I thought it'd be helpful just to see how the two kind of like work together. And I've just given you the names, the verses and the years, any notable details and the moral assessment. Were they good or were they bad? Now, just have a look at the, the tables. You should see them um, in your notes. Just carry over a few pages. But look at the side of it that says the king, uh, kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. When you look down that, what jumps out at you immediately? Anything? A lot of bad. They weren't very good, were they? It was a whole list of bad king after bad king after bad king. They walked in the way of Jeroboam. They didn't turn to the Lord. There was basically no repentance in the northern kingdom whatsoever. And it was just a whole lineage of kings walking away from God. Is there anything else that strikes you on it? A lot of short reigns and a lot of short dynasties as well. The, on, on the other side, the kings of Judah, it was all the Davidic dynasty working all the way through. But in Israel, it wasn't like that. In Israel, you'd got maybe one, two, sometimes up to four kings in a dynasty. But then someone else would come, would seize the throne, would take over. And particularly towards the latter end of it, the dynasties get shorter and shorter. It's like society's fallen, falling apart. There's no stability in the leadership. It, it's taken us back to the Wild West days of the judges, where anyone can be in charge, where anyone can do what they want. And it brings us, in the end, to King Hoshea, uh, who was king in 732 BC. And at the time of his reign was when Israel finally fell. He was another bad king, maybe not as bad as some of them, but he was still bad. And the Assyrians came in, they captured Samaria, and they carried the people away. Now, we're given in chapter 17 of Two Kings a bit of a theological reflection on what's happened. And it's made clear to us that what's happened is the result of the idolatry that the kings have led the people in. This succession of evil 
immoral, ungodly kings. It's what's led to them getting conquered and falling. The people then were resettled and they started living like a half-life. They'd sort of call on the name of the Lord, but they'd worship the carved images of the nations around them. It was like one foot in each camp was how they lived. And so they eventually became the people who were known as the Samaritans, who we find in a lot of the New Testament stories. And that's the reason why there was the animosity towards the Samaritans. It's, it's their roots as a people who'd compromised the faith, who'd turned away from God, who'd diluted the worship of God with the worship of the nations. And so that's why a lot of the, the people like the Pharisees and people around at the time were so suspicious of them. Well, what about Judah? Because if that's what was going on in Israel... Um, in Judah, it wasn't exactly the same story because as well as the bad kings, and there were still quite a few bad kings in Judah, there were actually some kings who were pretty decent. There were some kings who walked in the ways of David, who, uh, who turned the nation back to God, who when there'd been idolatry in the previous generation, who'd led the people in repentance. Reforming the high places, uh, removing the high places seemed uh, a bit of a threshold that not many of them reached, but still there was uh, their walking with God and generally a relatively positive verdict on some of them. It wasn't until Hezekiah that you got one who finally removed the high places, who finally went to the temple to pray. He was uh, one of the classic examples of a really good king. King Josiah was probably the very best king that we get in all of one and two kings. He became the king aged eight. He repaired the temple uh, when it was kind of dilapidated. He found the book of the law. He read it. He led the whole people in repentance and reform. He reinstated the Passover. And here's what it tells us about him in chapter 23, verse 26 of two kings. Um, sorry, that's the wrong verse. Just bear with me a second. Yeah, verse 25 is the one I was after. Uh, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. Remember what Jesus said the great commandment was, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what he's doing according to the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. So he was like the, the real high point. But even that couldn't uh, hold the tide because after him was a succession more bad kings, and eventually the southern kingdom also fell. The people were carried away into exile, and a governor was appointed over the city for what was left. So that, as well as the people taken away, the temple was destroyed, the whole city was leveled to the ground. And that's where we get at the end of one and two kings. Now, I missed a section, and the section I missed is there's a big chunk in the middle where you see the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And if you read the stories without reading those bits, then I think you sort of miss it. In the same way, reading 1 and 2 Samuel without seeing the story of the ark weaved in, you kind of miss it. Now, I'm not going to today outline everything that happened in the lives of Elijah and Elisha and the other prophets, because lots of other prophets are mentioned through these books. But what I am going to do is get you to do 
a bit of work around it. And I've just known a few verses you might want to look up. And again, probably we're talking skim rather than read just because of the time we've got. But just see what's going on in those verses. And then think from that about what we can learn. Who's really driving the narrative of what's going on in these books? You probably can guess the answer before you read the verses. But read them anyway. It will be, it will be a useful thing. I'm sure you haven't had time to do all of these, but you probably have had time to do enough that you've got the idea of what's going on. The, the same thing seems to happen in most of them. God's speaking through his prophets, and then what happens is reflective of what God said. It's God's word that drives the story through. And it might be worthwhile reading through some of the other references in your own time after. Let me just... Um, very briefly say something about Chronicles. I'm not going to go through Chronicles this morning. Chronicles tells the same story that we've already been through in the books of Samuel and Kings. In the same way that Matthew, Mark and Luke in the Gospels, they tell the same story. Sometimes they'll use exactly the same material. Sometimes they'll tell it in a different way. Sometimes they'll emphasise different details. You've got something like that going on with Chronicles compared to Samuel and Kings. But the main difference is that Chronicles was composed once the people had returned from the exile, and so it had a different set of questions and theological issues it was trying to bring out and raise. So it tells the story in a different way accordingly. And the Bible Project summarises it like this. First and Second Chronicles is in large part a retelling of the story you read in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. This is why the books often get overlooked, and that's definitely true. Chronicles, I would say, is probably one of the least read books in the whole Bible. We just rarely think to go there. As readers assume, it's just a repeat of what they've already read, but this book is way, way more. The Chronicler was living at a time when the Jewish people had long resettled in Jerusalem after returning from the Babylonian exile. Things were okay. You can read Ezra, Nehemiah or Malachi for a flavour of daily life in this period. But there was a growing awareness that God's ancient covenant promises to Abraham, Moses and David, which were reaffirmed by the prophets, had not yet come to pass. So they awaited a messianic king uh, of Isaiah who would rebuild the temple and would invite all the nations into God's kingdom. But where was this new David? And that's the question that Chronicles will really cover. I'd recommend getting into it and reading it and seeing that angle on the story. Where we need to go now then is we want to pick up the story in exile. But before we do that, we're going to pause and we're going to look at a few things that I'd say are perpendicular to the story. Most of School of Theology so far, we've been tracking through in a historical progression of what's going on. We're going to pause and we're just going to look at what was the, the nature of life like in Israel in a few different angles. So one of them is going to be what was their worship like? And so the next session we do, we're going to go into that by looking at the book of Psalms and looking at this worship book of Israel. We're going to look at the wisdom that they taught and look at uh, the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the rest. We look at the warnings that the prophets gave. So three of the remaining four sessions of the Old Testament year of School of Theology will be kind of camped out in this point in the story, but looking at these things that come out of it in a lot more detail, because that's the way the Bible goes. A lot of the biblical material 
is around that. And then we'll pick up the story again of God's people in the exile. How will they live as strangers in a foreign land? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, as the psalm goes? That's the question, isn't it? And will they ever come back to the land God had given them? How will God turn this people so prone to wander into his covenant people?